Well, open up your Bibles. We are making our way through John's Gospel still, so open it up to chapter 6 and verse 16. We are going to look at a story uh, this morning that might be very familiar to you. If the story isn't familiar to you, the concept probably is of Jesus walking on water, right? If you're not a Christian, you're not religious, you've never been to church before in your life, you probably still know Jesus as the guy who walks on water, right? That's his party trick. That's what Jesus does. He's the guy who walks on water. Um, But this is actually a fascinating story. And uh, as we look to it this morning, you might notice uh, it is kind of sandwiched right between uh, the miracle story that we looked at last week that Andy walked us through, which was uh, Jesus' miraculous feeding of 5,000 people, right? And so this story comes right after that and right before John's commentary on what the feeding of the 5,000 means. It's sitting right in between, which at first glance might seem a little bit weird, right? Why does John uh, put this story of Jesus walking on water that seems a bit out of the blue? Why does he tell one miracle story and then put another miracle story there and then explain the first miracle story? But when we actually look uh, at the walking on water story, we will see uh, that it actually logically makes a lot of sense because it is going to bring home with power and with clarity the point that John is trying to make uh, from the feeding of the 5,000 story. And that point is this, that yes, God cares deeply about our physical needs. And yes, God wants to provide and will provide everything that we need in this life, not everything that we want necessarily, but he will provide all that we need and he cares to look out for our physical needs and concerns immediately, right? But ultimately at the end of the day, God cares more urgently about our deeper need, which is spiritual, right? That's why John is going to go on to to, to show us and Jesus is going to go on to tell us about the feeding of the 5,000 story. Hey, I gave you bread miraculously, but actually, ultimately, what I came to do is not to give you bread, but to be bread for you, right? I want to be all satisfying to you. I want to be the bread. I am the bread from heaven. That's what he's going to say, right? And so John wants to make it clear to us, and he's going to show us through this walking on water story that Jesus came Yes, to provide for the physical, but more than that, he wants to meet our deep spiritual need. And if you remember from the feeding of the 5,000 story, after Jesus provides miraculously for these people, he provides bread, what happens at the end of the story? Andy did an amazing job walking us through it. The crowd tries to grab Jesus and make him king, right? They go, wow, this Jesus is awesome. He feeds us. He gives us bread. This is our guy. He's going to be the political figure that we want. He's going to uh, overthrow the Roman uh, rule that's reigning over us. He's going to be the cultural figure, the political figure that we want him to be. He gives us bread. He feeds us. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. I can get behind that Jesus, right? And Andy gave us that, that awesome quote about all the different Jesuses that we invent in our culture and that we like to follow. Uh, the Jesus that my friends, some of my friends like is uh, hippie Jesus, Right, who's going to take mushrooms with them and trip out watching Inception? That's their Jesus. I don't really want that Jesus. Right, but then there's football Jesus, touchdown Jesus. There's uh, all these different kinds of Jesus, these versions of him that we invent. Right, and what does Jesus do? He slips away. He doesn't let the crowd come and grab him because what John wants to show us is that Jesus will not be co-opted for our own 
personal little agendas and cultural things and political things that we want to make him about. He's about something far more significant than that. And before we get judgmental about the crowd, right, the point is that we are always in danger of falling into that same trap, right? Why do we follow Jesus, right? It's really easy to say that we're a Christian and that we love Jesus, we love God, we're going to follow him as long as he's giving me the things that I want, as long as he's making my life better, right? And we can fall into this rhythm where we start going after the gifts, but neglecting the giver, Right? We start going after the blessings of God and not going after God. Right? We want the things that Jesus can do for us and the things that he can give to us, but we don't want him. And that's what John wants us to see. That's what Jesus wants us to see. Through the, the bread miracle and through this walking on water miracle, John wants to show us and make so clear and bring this home to our hearts and encourage us, whether we're going through something really tough right now, the storms and the fire and the trials of life, or whether things are really good and really smooth right now, John wants to encourage our hearts by showing us who Jesus truly is and by reminding us and showing us in a beautiful way that Jesus himself is all satisfying, that the greatest gift that God could ever and has ever given to us is the gift of himself not the things that he can do for us or give to us, the gift of himself. And so I hope, I pray that that is encouraging to us. We're going to spend a few minutes looking at who Jesus is, who he reveals himself to be in this story. And we're going to look at the fact that his presence in our life makes all of the difference. Okay, let's read this story. John chapter 6, verse 16. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right, so we need to set the scene here. What happens? So we learn in, uh, actually in Mark and Matthew's version of this story that Jesus is the one who sent the disciples uh, down the hill uh, to get into the boat and to sail across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And Jesus, we know after the, the feeding of the 5,000, he is up on the mountain, he's praying with the Father. He's doing what Jesus does, getting in that rhythm where he, he does, 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 and then he retreats and he goes into prayer and communion with the Father, right? But he sends the disciples down into the boat to sail across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And John really wants us to get this. He wants, to, wants us to, to kind of embody this picture and put ourselves there. So try to use your imagination a little bit this morning. Put yourself in this scenario. Uh, what does John tell us? He tells us it was evening. Right? The disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and started across the sea. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. What is John telling us? Evening, dark. All through John's gospel, uh, the image of darkness is symbolic of the lack, the absence of the presence of Jesus. Right? We saw that in chapter 1. The world is dark. 
but in comes the light of men and drives out the darkness. We see in chapter 3 when Jesus, uh, with the Nicodemus story, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of night because he has not yet been born again. This is a symbol John's going to keep using. So what John wants to show us is it is dark, the night is falling, Jesus is nowhere to be found. The absence of the presence of Jesus. And what else does John tell us? The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So the Sea of Galilee, uh, on the eastern shore, where the disciples would have started their journey, it's covered by this ring of uh, mountains. It's basically a little mountain range. And what we know is that in that time, a strong wind would kind of whip into the area, and these mountains would keep the wind inside the sea area. And so you'd get these crazy strong, chaotic winds that would whip in and cause these massive storms, huge waves. And if you're a water person, if you've spent any time on a boat, invite me on your boat. I'd love to come with you. Um, You know that wind equals not good. Wind equals waves, right? I discovered this living uh, in Sydney, going out trying to learn how to surf uh, with my friends, an Edmonton boy, no water to be found anywhere near my home. Uh, But my Australian friends taught me this very quickly uh, because I got brave one day and tried to go out surfing without them when it was particularly windy. I will never do that again. I thought I was going to die. I got stuck out there. As soon as the wind comes in, the waves come up. The current underneath is crazy. There is no amount of paddling that you can do to best those waves. Okay, so that's what's going on right now. The disciples are in the boat. Crazy wind comes in, chaotic, big waves hitting them. It's dark, nightfall. Okay, they start to row across the sea. And what else do we know? Okay, so they set out at nightfall, and we know that they rowed three or four miles. And what we learn from, uh, from Matthew's version of the story is that when Jesus finally came to them, it was the fourth watch of night, which means it was around 3 a.m., Okay, so that might not sound like anything, but if we, if we think about this and if we do the math, okay, the disciples set out at nightfall, okay, so when it started to get dark, and they only made it about three or four miles when Jesus came to them at three or four in the morning. So the disciples were rowing against the storm, against the wind and the waves, battling the sea for about seven or eight hours as hard as they can fighting the waves, and they made it three or four miles, which is a tiny little fraction of what even the most average rower would have been able to do. So we know that this storm was crazy intense, and John wants to put us there in the story. Just try to picture it if you can. The disciples in the boat, okay? The wind is whipping against their face. If you've ever been on a boat in a storm, you know how unpleasant that sea spray is, right? You're soaked They've been rowing for seven hours as hard as they can against the waves. There's water sloshing in from the side. It's a group of men. Have you ever been with a group of men trying to accomplish a task together? They would have been fighting. That would not have been pleasant, yelling at each other. Peter and John are probably going at it, right? They're just exhausted, sweaty. Forearms are just wrecked. Your grip, your fingers are just wrecked. Your heart is racing Seven hours battling these waves, rowing into the wind, into the waves, making it nowhere. John wants us to understand and to feel the intensity, the depth of hopelessness that the disciples were feeling. Middle of the night, it's dark. They are exhausted. They are burnt out. They're terrified. They think that they're going down. 
right? It's the middle of the night. They've rowed seven or eight hours and gotten nowhere. They're still in the middle of the sea. Okay, they would have been wrecked, hopeless, discouraged. And maybe you feel like that with life right now. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're dealing with. But the fact is, Jesus, following Jesus, never guarantees a smooth life, a life free of problems, free of trials, free of storms. Andy talked about that last week. We don't need to to beat that to death. But it's the truth, right? And think about it. Jesus is the one who sent the disciples that way. Okay, he knew. He knew when he sent them on this voyage that they were heading for this storm. He knew they were going to hit this storm. The fact is, sometimes following Jesus requires us to go against the waves, against the wind, against the current, against the storm, and to go through really hard things. Sometimes Jesus sends us the way of the storm, the way of the fire, the way of the trial. If you don't believe me, just read any significant story in the Bible, right? We went through the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where did their their faithfulness to God lead them? The middle of a fiery furnace, right? Daniel, where did his faithfulness to God lead him? The middle of a lion's den. Look at the life of Paul. We'd say Paul lived a pretty faithful life, right? Obedient life. His faithfulness to God led him to prison. It led him to be shipwrecked. It led him to be beaten multiple times, right? And the reality is the life of following Jesus is not a life that is guaranteed to be free of pain, and free of hardship. Sometimes God lets things get really dark. Sometimes he lets things get really painful. Why does Jesus let the disciples go all night battling this storm? Why does he let them get to this point? Why doesn't he step in sometime in the seven or eight hours before he does? He lets them fight it. He lets them get to the middle of the storm. He lets them get to the middle of the sea. He lets them get to this point where they are hopeless, where they are discouraged, where they are feeling wrecked. The first point I want to pull out of this this passage for us to focus on is Jesus comes to us in our darkest hour. So why does Jesus let the disciples get to this point? Why does God bring us through the storm and allow us to get really, really dark sometimes? We don't actually know exactly why. That's the crazy thing. We don't know why, but there are a few things that we do know. Romans 5 tells us this. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what do we know about trials and suffering? We know that it's not wasted We know that God is doing something with it. We know that through endurance, God is building character in us. He's doing something in you that he needs to do. He's growing something in you that he needs to grow. And through that character, he's building hope. Right? That we have a sure and a steadfast hope that the things we are going through are not wasted and they are not meaningless. And what does Paul tell us? God will not let us be put to shame. Right? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What else do we know about these times? 
James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We know that God is doing something, that God is building something in us. If we allow God to do this thing that he wants to do through the process that he is bringing us through, he's going to uh, produce steadfastness. If we hold on to our faith, if we hold on to him and press into him, he's going to produce steadfastness in us and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is building maturity in us. I don't know why God allows things to get really hard and really dark for us sometimes. We might never know, but what we do know is, again, do a quick read of the Bible, any story. Show me a great woman or a great man of faith with a deep and profound walk with the Lord, and I will show you the trials and the suffering and the pain that they had to endure to get there. Right? Look at all the significant figures of the Bible. Their faith was forged in the fire. Right? God uses it. He uses it for something great. Right? This is the God who can use pain, who can use our storms to bring us to a depth and a level of faith and a depth of relationship with him that we did not even know was possible. He's doing something in it. What else do we know? Second Corinthians, Paul tells us this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That seems bold of Paul, right? To call struggles that we're going through light and momentary because they don't feel light and they don't feel momentary. They feel long and painful and drawn out and they feel so heavy, right? But what Paul is saying is, hold on, endure, let God do what he is doing and know, have confidence, have assurance, steadfast hope that God is using this thing, preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that vastly outshines, that vastly outweighs what you are going through. Look at that contrast, right? It's light, momentary affliction. Even though it doesn't feel that way, it is preparing for us an eternal weight. Light, momentary, eternal weight. No pain, no affliction is wasted. And what else do we know? The promise here from our our passage is that we won't walk alone through it. Right? Because Jesus comes. Right? He waits till the middle of the night. He waits till the darkest hour. But then he comes. Right? He chooses the middle of the night when the disciples are at their lowest to reveal himself to them. Right? And so they thought, they're in the middle of the sea, the middle of the boat, feeling like they're going down, feeling like they got nothing left in them, feeling like Jesus had abandoned them. Right? They were just with him. They saw him do this miraculous thing with 5,000 people. But now they think maybe Jesus has left us. Maybe he's abandoned us. And just think about it, long before the disciples saw Jesus come to them on the sea, Jesus had already started making his way to them, right? They didn't even know it. Long before they saw him appear, Jesus was 
He was doing it. He was walking on the water. He was stepping over the waves that they were battling against. Three or four miles, Jesus is already walking toward them. Before the disciples called out to God, before they knew Jesus was there coming to them, Jesus had already seen them from the mountains somehow through, you know, three or four miles of whipping rain and wind and waves and storms. Jesus saw them. He knew what they were going through and he cared and he started moving toward them, pursuing them in love. And whatever you are wrestling with right now, going through right now, battling right now, it's so easy in the midst of it, in the darkest hour, to think that God has forgotten about you, that he doesn't see what you're going through, that he doesn't care what you're going through, and that he's not coming for you. Hold on. That is not true. Jesus comes in the darkest hour. Before you even know it, before you even call out to them, he knows exactly what you're feeling right now, exactly what you're walking through right now, and he cares deeply. Next thing I, I want to just look at from this passage is Jesus is the great I am. This is what he reveals to the disciples. Right? So in the middle of these storms, in the middle of the sea, it can be easy to start to think that God doesn't see us, that he doesn't care us, but it can also be easy to start to think or start to forget, I should say, who God is, who Jesus is. Right? The disciples have just, they've walked with Jesus this whole time. They've seen him do miraculous, amazing, wonderful things. They've seen him do miracles. Yet as soon as they get into the middle of the thick of it, they forget. Right? They forget who he is. They forget what he's capable of. They forget who he is and all that he has done. And it's so easy for us to do the same thing. What do we read? When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And what? They were frightened. The disciples are terrified. They think Jesus has abandoned them, but they see Jesus. And we read in Mark 6 and Mark's version of this story that when the disciples see Jesus coming for them, they actually think he's a ghost, right? They think he's uh, Davy Jones, whatever that squid face guy from Pirates of the Caribbean. They think he's about to call the Kraken to come and get them, right? They think he's some weird ghost or apparition or appearance of a weird thing, but it's Jesus coming for them. Right? And what does Jesus do to still their fears? Jesus changes everything with two words. Two words. So look at that phrase in verse 20. But he, Jesus, said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. That little phrase is actually two words in the Greek. It is ego eimi. I am. I am. John is going to show us Jesus using this phrase several times throughout the gospel. If you remember, these are the I am statements. There's a few of them. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. He has all these I am statements. What is John telling us? Why is this significant? Because we read way back in the Old Testament in Exodus 3.14, Moses in the burning bush. If you remember that story, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is God revealing himself to Moses. Moses says, who, who should I tell my people that, that is sending me? Who are you, basically? And God's reply is, I am who I am. This is God saying to Moses, revealing to Moses, Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who is creator of, 
and sustainer of heavens and the earth, the sea and the skies and everything in them. I am that God and I will deliver your people. What Jesus is doing as he approaches these scared disciples in the boat, terrified, he looks at them and he says the same thing that God said in Exodus. I am. This is Jesus identifying himself with God, claiming to be that God. This is Jesus looking in the face of these terrified disciples and going, guys, I know you're going through it right now, but hey, look at me, look at me. I am God, that God that delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, the God who right from the beginning, Genesis 1, from creation, who made order out of the watery chaos, the God who delivered Noah and his family from the watery chaos of the flood. You remember that? The God who, who delivered the people through the Red Sea on dry land, who parted the sea. The God whose presence in the middle of the Jordan River stopped the flow of the Jordan River so your people could walk through it and go into the land that I promised to them. I'm that God. And I can walk over these waves that you are battling so hard because I invented water. I'm that God. Don't be afraid because I am that God and I am with you. I am with you. How crazy is that? Notice how Jesus doesn't, you know, in order to comfort the disciples, he doesn't give them a little pep talk about how they can do it and they're great. You know, we hear way too much of that. That's not what we need when we're in our darkest moment. We don't need somebody to come alongside us. Yes, some encouragement is good. Don't get me wrong. You don't want to kick a guy when he's down. But we don't need this talk about you're amazing. Fulfill yourself. Save yourself. You have the power in yourself to do it. You can pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. No. Jesus says, I am when we're going through the hardest things that we will ever go through in life, what is going to put steel in our spine and help us to stand up and keep moving forward is not to be told that we are good. It's to be shown and to gaze upon the face of Jesus and to know who he is. What else can give you the courage that you need in your life than to know that the God who created the entire universe is with you? That's what will hold you up. That's why he says, I am, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And I think this is a big moment for the disciples in, in starting to grasp who Jesus actually is. Because up until this point, they're not really getting it. But I think they're starting to see now. And it gives them courage. Jesus is claiming these promises about God, who God is from the Old Testament this is a really powerful one from, from the prophet Isaiah. Just, just hear this. Be encouraged by this. Jesus is claiming this about himself. Isaiah 43. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Just be encouraged wherever you are. Be encouraged by the strength, not of your own goodness, not of your own strength, but by just realizing, by remembering, by gazing upon 
who Jesus is, the great I am, and he is with you and he is for you. Right? I cannot tell you how many times this has been the only thing holding me up. Right? When I feel like a failure, when I feel like I've dropped the ball, when I feel like I, I cannot deal with what's in front of me. Right? Whether that's a transition in life going into a new season, whether that's feeling like a failure as a husband, feeling like a failure as a friend. Right? Whatever is in front of you, whatever you're facing right now, whatever you might be in the middle of right now, if you have received Jesus into your life, his presence into your life, his spirit poured out into your life, he is with you and he is for you and he will hold you up. He might not give you what you want, but he will give you what you need. He will provide all that you need. And so what's the reaction? The disciples were glad to take Jesus into their boat. Right? It is I, do not be afraid. Verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is kind of a weird, abrupt ending to the story, right? The disciples take Jesus into the boat and then it's just like, boop, done, right? No commentary from John about what happens there. No explanation. Theologians and, and commentators are actually... Nobody agrees. No one really knows what happens at the end of this story because if you look at it, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Um, That can mean a couple things. Either we've got another little miracle here where they're in the middle of the sea, Jesus gets in the boat, and then it's just like, like instantly at the shore. Either that happens or it feels immediate. So once Jesus gets into the boat, the disciples feel like no time has passed because the presence of their Savior is with them and Boom, okay, now we made it the rest of our journey. They don't really know, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that there's no commentary on it. So John doesn't even tell us Jesus got in the boat and then the storm stopped, right? He doesn't tell us that the waves stopped, the wind stopped, everything was good, everything was calm. No comment on that at all. And I think that's the point. It's not about the calming of the storm. The point is that Jesus got in the boat. That's why the story wraps up right when Jesus gets in the boat. The point is Jesus got in the boat. The disciples gladly welcomed the presence of God, the presence of Jesus into their situation, into their life. And that was enough for them. Right? Because Jesus is trying to to bring home for us with these two miracles that he in himself is enough. His presence is enough. His presence, more than anything else, is what we most desperately, most deeply need. Right? John keeps telling us over and over again in his gospel, he's going to keep telling us that Jesus came to what? So that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Right? Jesus came to bring us life, to provide life to the fullest, life full and abundant. What does that mean? John tells us, John 17, and this is eternal life. That they know you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. It is not having a better life. It is not getting the stuff from God that we hope that we think he can give us. It is not having a life free of trials and tribulation and fire and storms. Eternal life is knowing God. It is the crazy, insane, out-of-this-world privilege that we have 
of getting to do life with the God of the universe, the one who made the seas and the world and the stars and the land and the heavens and the animals and everything in them and is Lord over the entire cosmos, wants to live with us. Have you heard that so many times that it just kind of flies over your head and doesn't mean anything? Man, come on. The God of the universe wants to live with us. We can do life in step with him. In fact, he wants to pour his spirit, his life into our heart. That is the greatest privilege. Right? That he wants to do life with us. We can walk with him in intimate relationship. We can speak with him. We can hear his voice. The God of the universe. John Piper, I think, nails it. He usually nails it. He says, this is not a story about getting people out of storms. This is a story about getting Jesus in the boat. This is the boat. I got my boat. I got my issues. They are not yours. And I got to trust him for my family issues and my church issues and my health issues. You got your issues. You got your boat. You got your storms. You got your hungers. And you can trust him. It is not that there will not be storms and battles. The point is we will have the one who created the sea sitting in the boat with us. Right? Getting us through it. Giving us all that we need. Not all that we want, but all that we need. And this is the beauty of the Christian life, ultimately. Right? We get to walk in intimate, personal relationship with the God of the universe. Right? What greater privilege could there possibly be? And so the the presence of Jesus we see changes everything. It makes all of the difference. And so the question for us is, are we walking in that? Are we walking day by day, moment by moment in the chaos, the busyness, the craziness of our lives? Are we actually walking in step with the presence of God, the spirit of God? And I don't mean, are we doing Christian things. I don't mean, are we going to church? I don't mean, are we even doing a morning Devo? Because sometimes I do a morning Devo and then five minutes after that, I forget what I read in my morning Devo and I go to work and I go to the gym and I do stuff and I don't even think about God my entire day. And then I get home and go, oh, I got my evening Devo now. Cool. And then I go to bed, right? Are we actually walking in the presence of God, in the power and the presence of his Spirit, are we taking, making the most of what a privilege that actually is? What does this look like? It might look different for each of us, but I think at the core of it, it can be as simple as just being aware of God's presence as we go about our day-to-day things, right? Like even as simple as, hey, I'm going to, God, I'm going to go home and watch the Super Bowl today as I'm sitting on the couch. Jesus, I know that you're here with me. God, as I have people over to my home and I'm trying to be hospitable and I'm feeding them, you're here with me. God, will you come with me? Come with me to this Super Bowl party. Right? It's welcoming him gladly into our boats, into our situations, into every little thing that we do. God, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm scared about this conversation I need to have with, with my boss, with a work colleague. Can you, will you come with me? Be with me in this, Lord. Speak to me in the midst of this. Do something great with this, Lord. I know that you're here with me. Lord, I need to have this conversation with my spouse. You know, can, can you help? I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to say. Come with me in this, Lord. I know you're here with me in this, in the trials, in the stuff that you're going through right now. What is it going to look like to welcome 
gladly the presence of God into that thing, into that storm, into that trial? What is it going to look like for you to turn to God in prayer, not as a last resort, but as a first response, right? Not as a Hail Mary, right? Football Hail Mary, Jesus, but as a first response, Lord, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know that you are the great I am and that you, you want to do something with this. Be with me in this, Lord. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. And have you received and known the presence of God in your life at all? Have you ever received the gift of grace that Jesus offers to you? Have you experienced the life in his name that he so continually offers to you? I think we often, another version of Jesus, we often pitch is this kind of desperate, lonely Jesus who needs more friends, right? And he's just sitting outside of our door knocking, and like, oh, please let me in, I need more friends. Like, he kind of needs us. Like, he would be so lucky for us to join him, right? That's not who Jesus is, right? The disciples were about to drown. They were terrified. They had nothing. And Jesus came to them. He walked over the waves and came to them and said, hey, you're about to drown. You gonna let me in the boat? right? God does not need us, but he wants us. That's the crazy thing. And he goes to great lengths walking over the sea. He goes to great lengths hanging on a cross, having his flesh pierced, bleeding out for us, suffocating for us to show us how much he loves us, how much he wants us. He does not need us. But have you responded to that? Do you know the presence of the living God in your life, I would just encourage you. I don't say that as an accusatory thing. I say that as an encouragement. Receive that. What is that going to look like for each of us? Let's pray and then let's worship. Lord, thank you that you are the great I am. Lord, that we don't get to invent you in our image, but you are the one who created the heavens and the earth. And for some crazy reason, you desire to live with us. And you've gone to great lengths to pursue us. Thank you that you come to us. You meet us in our darkest times, Lord. I pray for each one here. If they're going through it right now, Lord, please make your presence known to them. Reveal yourself to them, Lord. Give them the comfort and the courage and the encouragement that they need right now in this moment. Lord, we know that you can do that. We know that you want to do that. And Lord, help us to live, to walk in step with you day by day. Not to just do life our way and then call you when we need you, Lord, but to actually walk in step with you, the presence and the power of your spirit working in our lives. Lord, thank you that you are who you are. I just ask that what we do now as we sing, as we take the Lord's Supper, we wouldn't do this thoughtlessly, Lord, but we would turn our hearts to you in true praise and true worship for how amazing you are. In Jesus' name, amen.